Well, turn with me to Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23, and I promise you we are now through the sections of uh, bodily fluids and crushed body parts and all the horrible things that we had to deal with, but that's part of living in a sinful world, and Leviticus in the law of God tells us how to deal with those things and uses those terrible parts of life to be a contrast against the holiness of God and the purity of our our faith. And so now we turn to Leviticus ends very much uh, on some climactic points. And as you're thinking on Leviticus 23, just listen to the famous passage in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. I think probably one of the very first battles that a new Christian faces is the idea of resting in God. And I'm not talking about what we spoke of this morning on assurance of salvation, but simply the idea of resting on a day-to-day basis. Having trusted God to forgive sins, now the battle for peace begins. And I've seen so very often in the lives of new believers that it seems that trials and suffering begin immediately. And it's almost as if God puts you in boot camp, that you are going to learn to trust Him and He gives you opportunity to do so. And that really is the essence of what we might call spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is basically, can I trust the Lord versus trusting myself? That's what maturity is. Can I trust that obeying Him is always the best, even when my instincts or my previous experience scream at me to rely on my own strategies? Can I trust the Lord that despite a difficult marriage, for example, the best thing to do is to pursue obedient holiness by husbands loving your wives truly and wives submitting to your husbands truly? Can I trust the Lord that when my body and my emotions betray me in anxiety, that I can still rest in Him. That even if outwardly I'm manifesting signs of panic and alarm, inwardly I'm pursuing the peace which surpasses all understanding. Now in my years of expositing various scripture texts concerning the idea of resting in the Lord, especially in the midst of suffering and trials, there have been numerous extremely predictable and very consistent findings in those different studies. Uh, For example... The sovereignty of God has to be a vital component to peacefulness. I don't think a Christian can truly be peaceful without a grasp of sovereignty. Understanding that God is not at your beck and call and that you are not the center of God's plan and that your suffering is really not all about you. Another predictable finding in those studies is that God doesn't obligate himself to reveal to you why a particular trial is happening and all of our attempts to figure out why are fruitless and they're pointless and they don't help. Another finding I've found very consistently across God's word is that God's will for you is always to be conformed to the image of Christ and suffering is beneficial for you toward this end. That's always the case. But the one finding I want to highlight this evening in every study of how the Christian seeks out and finds rest in the Lord, this one is always prominent. And this is the, this is the basic principle Our rest in the Lord is best achieved in and through holiness. Our rest in the Lord is best achieved in and through holiness. 
And of course, holiness has been our theme in Leviticus, that God is holy, therefore his people are to be holy, meaning we're to be set apart, we're different, we're purified, we're, we're not of the world, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. Now, some have said, and I've heard this in my own pastor's office, the pursuit of holiness causes me anxiety. Well, actually, no. Holiness is not the cause of anxiety. Holiness is the antidote to anxiety. It's the cure. Holiness is the means by which you rest in the Lord. Being set apart, living a life that's set apart. Holiness, by the way, is the most practical and easily grasped thing that you're to do when you're anxious or when you're suffering. And let me explain. Which is easier to grasp and understand? First, somebody says to you, well, just lean on Jesus. Well, that's right, but what do you mean by that? I I mean, how do I do that? Or, what Peter told the suffering believers of the churches he addressed in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1.14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And he's telling this to suffering believers. Yes, we want to lean on Jesus. Peter tells us how to do it. Live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. That's how you walk through suffering. And very often in counseling, our job as counselors is to switch gears for the counselee from would you please solve my problem to would you please help me walk through my problem in a way that pleases God. And guess what? I can't solve any problems, but I can help you walk through the problem in a way that pleases the Lord. And that's the focus. And so our text this evening, Leviticus 23, 24, and 25 This relationship between holiness and resting in the Lord becomes very, very prominent. And it's very practical. It's very useful to us. Now, of course, as New Covenant believers in Christ, we're not bound by the laws that we'll examine tonight. But the principles found in these laws remain the same because God never changes. And what it takes to trust God never changes. That's always the same. And so tonight, I want to walk through this text and I want to use it to show you very simply Four qualities of a believer who's at rest. Four qualities of a believer at rest. And I I know there's enough of you in this room to know that this is something you're going to want to grasp onto because every one of you at one level or another struggles with peace, struggles with anxiety, struggles with wanting to sense that peace that surpasses all understanding, that giant breath of fresh air that the Lord gives in absolute peace. So I hope you will be benefited by this. I hope that you will grab onto these qualities. Here's the first quality. A life centered on worship. A life centered on worship. Chapter 23 opens with the Lord introducing a list of holy days and feasts, adding to their previous lists that we found in here. Chapter 23, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. First of all, what do we get? Well, they're going to get a brief summary here, a summary command of previous longer sessions concerning the Sabbath day. We start with the Sabbath. Verse 3, six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. 
And so it's brief and it's to the point because other longer explanations of the Sabbath have been offered. But we should point out again here that this centered the life of the faithful Israelite. This was the hub of all life. This was the center of all activity. And in fact, it's so important that the Sabbath is the sign of God's covenant with Israel, the Mosaic covenant. This is, what, this is the flag that is flown to say, I'm a part of this covenant. It is the sign of the Sabbath. And so now God begins to outline their year, their worship year. And so we start first with the festivals that happen in the springtime, the spring feasts. We have the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They happen essentially at the same time. Now we've already gotten a detailed explanation back in Exodus 12, but the Lord has Moses review this for the people. Chapter 23, verse 5. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. No matter what day of the week it falls on, the first day of Passover is to be treated as a Sabbath day. And then a food offering is to be given to the Lord for the next week. And on the seventh day, that is to be a holy gathering time that is also treated as a Sabbath day. And then right on the heels of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a reminder of purity and holiness before God. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament use the idea of leaven or yeast as a symbol of sin which pollutes and ruins a whole person. And so the Passover lamb is offered as a blood sacrifice to make possible the purity from sin symbolized in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now we're still in the spring and we get to the Feast of the First Fruits. The Feast of First Fruits, chapter 23, verse 9, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now, what is this? Well, the first crop to be brought in in the spring was the barley crop. And so this would be uh, happening very early in the spring. <clears throat> in the spring, excuse me. And so the, the way it happened was important. Because this wasn't something that you, you kind of decided over a long period of time. This was the very first thing that you got out of the ground. And in fact, before any of your barley was processed, eaten, or sold at all, you were to bring it before the Lord. You were to uh, show Him that you're acknowledging that all that He has given to you is from Him. And so we have this Feast of the first fruits, And now, they're not bringing much. It says you'll bring a, a sheaf before the Lord, just, just a big clump of barley as a small sacrifice, just to show that you are trusting God. Now, in addition, you brought an offering of a male lamb without blemish, and a grain offering was brought as well, but it wasn't much. This was an acknowledgement that despite the curse that God has placed upon the ground in Genesis 3, God has graciously brought forth a bounty for his people out of his love and his protection. And if you've ever tried to grow anything and you're as unsuccessful at it as I have been, you know that when something actually grows, there's a, there's a sense of gratitude. And, and if you are depending on that for your livelihood, the gratitude goes up even more. And so the idea is that what the Lord has given, I will take the very first part of that, not a bad principle for giving, by the way, and I will give that to the Lord. 
And then very similar to the Feast of First Fruits, you had the Feast of Weeks. Chapter 23, verse 15. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days. We use the word Pentecost. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. Now, what is this? This is similar to the Feast of First Fruits, but this highlighted now the beginning of the wheat harvest. Wheat was considered more valuable than barley, and now the offerings to the Lord are ratcheted up significantly. You bring two loaves of bread from the harvest to the Lord and seven lambs without blemish and a bull and two rams and a male goat and two more male lambs. In other words, the, the Lord has now asked for much more because he's given much more. This is the time of prosperity. And in fact, the, the Lord reminds the people at this time to be very generous in the bounty that they have out of their gratitude to God and their love for providing for their providing Lord. Look at verse 22. This is the time. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. By the way, if you ever read through the book of Ruth, Ruth occurs during the barley and wheat harvest season. And that's why she's able to glean. And so those are the the spring festivals. Now we get to the fall festivals. These are happening in the September-October range. The main harvesting work is now done. And in fact, the majority of your farm work is at a minimum now. And this was the time of year that as a farmer, as a rancher, you took time to take stock, both spiritually and materially. And in fact, in the space of just one month, God prescribes four extra Sabbaths including the most holy day of atonement. The special sacrifices for all the festivals we're about to look at, they're listed in detail in Numbers 29, so we'll have a chance to go back to those when we get to Numbers. But first you had the Feast of Trumpets. Chapter 23, verse 23, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation, That is a gathering. You shall not do any ordinary work and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. So again, this day is to be treated as Sabbath, whatever day it falls on. The trumpets are blown, and this is very important. It'll be important later. The trumpets are blown to to mark that harvest is now finished, that all the harvest has been brought in and the month of extra times of worship now begins. The people are to gather and they're to worship on this day, regardless of what day of the week. And then you have right on the heels of the Feast of Trumpets, you have the highlight of the worship year still in the fall, and that is the Day of Atonement. Chapter 23, verse 26, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of this seventh month is the Day of Atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. Now, a little note here. They are told to afflict themselves. It simply means to fast. And it is the only prescribed fast in the law of God. But this is the day where they are seriously looking at their own sin, and they are uh, analyzing and bringing to the Lord the offering on behalf of all the people 
Verse 32 says, It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves, you shall fast, and on the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. Now, we already saw a detailed explanation of the Day of Atonement back in chapter 16. The high priest must make an offering for himself so that he can then, in turn, make an offering on behalf of the people. It was a solemn day of repentance and of restoration. This was the day when when the Lord pours his favor on his people once again. And then, still in the fall, you had the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. This was an eight-day-long festival. Chapter 23, verse 33, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days is the, is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do, not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. Just a side note, the Feast of Booths is highlighted in the Gospel of John, John chapter 7. Basically, the entire chapter takes place during the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. But during that week, they would live in handmade shelters. They would live in in little shelters made of of wood or little pieces of of stuff that you find lying around. They would make these these little lean-tos. And it reminded them of how they once had to live in tents when? When they came out of Egypt. Now, here's an interesting thing, by the way. When Moses is telling them this, where are they living? They're living in tents. And so he's telling them in advance, you are going to receive such blessing and some bounty, such bounty from the Lord that there will be a feast that God wants you to keep to remember what's happening right now at this moment. Moses reminded Israel in Deuteronomy 6, 10, and 11. He says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, when you eat and are full, they were to be grateful. And so during this Feast of Booths, it was a time, and it was a great time. It was a, it was a celebratory time where you got your family together. It's basically, let's go camping in our backyard, is what they would do. And so it was a time to remember. If you've ever gone camping, you know what the best part about camping is? Is coming home to your own bedroom and bathroom, isn't it? And, and that's, it makes you grateful. It makes you thankful. What a glorious way to live. All these feasts that part of enjoying the Lord's provision and his protection is all throughout the year giving over to the Lord the control of your weekly time and control of your seasonal time. By the way, did you notice this? The faithful Israelite oriented his work around his worship, not the other way around. He oriented his work around his worship. These were happy days. And frankly, even the Day of Atonement Yes, you're fasting because of sin, and sin is being dealt with at the highest level, but what are we celebrating? Sin is being dealt with. On most of these days, normal work is suspended, work related to your occupation, to your livelihood, while regular household duties are not suspended. It was just a day to slow down. On two of the days, though, on Sabbath and on the Day of Atonement, any and all kind of work 
is prohibited at that point. And so these were times for families to be together. These were times for the community of faith to be together. These were times for, uh, for us to be generous to the poor. For the community of faith, and that's a useful term, community of faith, because do we have a community of faith? Yes, it is our local church. This is our community of faith. This is our Israel, so to speak. Uh, this is a life at rest. That no matter what you're doing, no matter what's happening, whether you're poor, whether you're rich, whether you're prosperous, whether you're not, you've centered your life on worship. And that is what you, that is where your crux and your center And by the way, not only were they to live their lives centered on worship, but they were to live their lives centered on consistent, faithful worship. Consistent, faithful worship. And this is our second quality. Consistent, faithful worship is a quality of a believer who is at rest. Chapter 24, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp that a light may be kept burning regularly. This is the lamp of the holy place, the, the sort of waiting area inside the tabernacle, uh, outside the most holy place. This is the menorah. This is the big, we picture it as a candlestick, but it, it basically it was really a, an oil lamp. And so what was he to do? He was to keep the light burning regularly. And then the bread for the holy place, representing the presence of God. There was to be consistency there as well. Chapter 24, verse 5. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord, and here's the key, every Sabbath day, every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. Listen, just in this little section from chapter 24, verse 1 through verse 9, the Hebrew word for continually or regularly happens four times. And what does this tell us? It tells us that worship was not something that you did spontaneously. Worship was not something you did as a reaction It was a lifestyle. It was consistent. It was something that was faithful. It was the center of your life. And yes, I know that in our American culture, we value spontaneity. That, well, I just broke out in song. And that's great. And that's fine. But you don't wake up on a Sunday morning and say, I just decided to go to church. No, it's part of your life. You arrange your life around it. Listen, a Christian not devoted to a life of worship I don't think you can really experience the peace and the rest that God promises to those who are his. You you just can't because you're fighting with the world and you're trying to keep one foot in the world and one foot in heaven. Let me put this in a more positive way. We've said this about a thousand times that a believer who will live his life in the church, who will love the church, who's devoted to God as expressed in our community of faith, which is the local church, I think only in that context will you experience rest and peace. You can't play with the world. You can't orient your life around the world and try to fit worship into a worldly lifestyle and be peaceful. You just can't. Because what are you really doing? What you're really doing is saying, God, I trust myself more than you, and I need to use my time to pursue my pursuits, and I'll try to squeeze in some worship as I go. 
You remember what one of the purposes of Sabbath was? One of the purposes of Sabbath is to take people who were used to working seven days a week and tell them, no, you will work six and you will trust me for the seventh. All other forms of peace really are a deception. They're a lie from the evil one. And I know I'm preaching to the choir now, but perhaps you can help others around you. If you've fallen for the lie that you're special, that you don't need the church as much as others do, you're essentially saying, I can live a life of rest and peace outside of pursuing a lifestyle of worship and with God's community of faith. You know what that says? That says I'm better than you. And you're not. We need each other. There is a reason the church is called the body of Christ. We're in the body. I, you know, as I read through chapter 23, numbers of times, it made me long to have festivals like this. It made me long for this life. But really, our truest feasting is in Christ, isn't it? We feast at the Lord's table. Why? Because there is no more sacrifice for sin necessary. Christ is the final and true and perfect sacrifice. And of course, we gather on the Lord's day. By the way, the New Testament doesn't call it the Lord's morning. It calls it the Lord's day in the community of faith. And by the way, we're inaugurating our own miniature version of the Feast of Booths. We call it the all-church retreat. It's just a Christianized version of the Feast of Booths to go outside our homes and devote ourselves to worship and fellowship and thankfulness to the Lord. Don't worry, our booths have running water, so that'll be fine. You want a life of rest through holiness? Then have a life centered on worship. Can I tell you the first thing to do to have a life centered on worship? Get your calendar out and mark off Sundays and you don't do anything else except worship on those days. That is not a Sabbath law. That's just good wisdom. Start there. Here's a second quality of a third quality rather of a believer at rest. We have a life centered on worship. We have a life centered on consistent worship. And third, we have a life honoring God's commands, a life honoring God's commands. The next two little sections deal with our attitude toward God and our attitude toward one another. Chapter 24, verse 10. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and the man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelemith, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. And what was the verdict? He was put to death. Why? Verse 16. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native when he blasphemes the name shall be put to death. Now this is what's called a case law. It is a single case that became now a precedent in Israel. And this isn't just a case of somebody uttering the name Yahweh. No, that's not what this is. It was the use of God's name in a curse which merited the death penalty. Now, in our culture, when we think of cursing, we think of a certain list of inappropriate words that we deem wrong to use. But this was an actual curse, meaning it is the use of God's name in a curse, literally in Hebrew, to deem somebody small, to deem them inconsequential. So how do we put this together? The name of God with a curse. It goes something like this. 
May God curse you because you are unworthy of his love. Now, why is that serious? That's serious because you have now placed yourself in the position of God as a judge of a human being. And worse, you have judged yourself as more deserving of grace than another. This is exactly the same offense that Jesus outlined in Matthew 5.22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults, who curses his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool, meaning you are an unbeliever and I am a believer, will be liable to the hell of fire. This is the idea of being so angry with another person that you believe them unsavable and unworthy of God's affection while you, of course, are worthy of God's affection. And what does Jesus say this makes you guilty of? You are guilty of murder. And therefore, in the Old Covenant, you incur the death penalty for this. And so that is our attitude toward God. We do not denigrate God by placing ourselves in His position. And then we get to this classic law, sometimes called in Latin the lex talianus, the law of retaliation, Verse 17, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good life for life. If anyone injured his, injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. And then you have the classic list, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given the person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native for I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. Now this is the lex talionis, the law of retaliation. This is not personal vengeance. This is talking about what the official government of Israel is to do. Uh, This is not eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, meaning you're going to visit somebody at midnight and give them what they gave you. It means that legally... The punishment is to resemble the crime in in degree and in intensity. Now, by the way, this is one little section here that is a common reason for Christians to completely misunderstand the Old Testament. And they throw out these broad, inaccurate, inaccurate generalizations such as the Old Testament is about punishment and the New Testament is about grace. That's not true. The whole Bible is about grace and the whole Bible is about punishment. Actually, this law is a, is a tremendous grace. It is part of God's general grace to the world and, and general grace to a society for three reasons, that this is gracious of the Lord. First of all, when the evildoer is punished, it makes a society livable and it creates peace among law-abiding citizens. And this has been proven time and time again with criminal justice studies that the higher the accountability in a society to obey the law, the higher the uh, property values go, the higher that the perception of how happy it is to live in that community goes, the two go hand in hand. And yet when people say, well, we need to be lax on the law, we not, need to not enforce the law because of some so-called compassion, what happens? Property values plummet. Chaos ensues and people get hurt and killed. And so this is, this is a gracious law of God to make a society livable. The second reason this is gracious, this prevented totalitarianism in which a small crime could be punished with a large punishment. And by the way, when the government does this regularly, 
when it punishes small crimes with large punishments, it now enters into the realm of being totalitarian and ultimately stops acting like a legitimate government because it's now it's just engaging in cruelty for the sake of maintaining power. Just a few weeks ago in the Midwest, a man, and I don't condone this, but a man stole from a church a big LBGTQ flag that was flying at the church. Whole nother issue, but he felt that that should not be flying there, so he stole it and he burned it. He got 15 years in prison for that. What would he have gotten if he had burned the American flag? He probably would have gotten on the front page of the news as a hero. And so that's an example of totalitarianism. But what happens here is if you do a small crime, then your punishment is small. And they they are uh, increasing with the size of the crime. That's gracious. That's kind. Here's a third way that there's grace here. Did you notice that God makes no distinction between human beings? That if an Israelite harmed a Gentile, then the Israelite was to be punished just as much. This is almost unheard of in ancient law codes. Generally speaking, a crime in other cultures was considered lesser if it was committed against a slave or against a foreigner. But not in this case. What is God upholding? He is upholding the fact that all human beings, regardless of station in life, are made in the image of God. So this is a gracious, kind law, and it tells us to watch ourselves and to behave ourselves. As part of God's covenant community, the true believer was to honor God, beginning in verse 10, and honor one another, beginning in verse 17. That's, that's a simple concept. In Acts chapter 24, when Paul was making his defense before Governor Felix, he'd been arrested falsely, falsely accused of starting a riot. Paul told Felix, I will cheerfully make my defense before you. And what was his reason? Acts 24, beginning in verse 14. Why is he cheerful? But this I confess to you, this is Paul speaking to Felix, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So this is why he is cheerful. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience before both God and man. Verses 10 through 16 and 17 through 23, God and man. Why was he cheerful when he's in custody? Why is he cheerful in chains? Why is he restful, to put it that way, on trial? Because his conscience was clear. That was the cause of his rest. And I don't think you can put a price on that. How do you have a clear conscience? Very simple. Confession and restoration. That's a clear conscience. Anything bothering your conscience, make it right either with God or man or both. That's a major connection there between holiness and resting in God. So you want a life of rest through holiness. You have a life centered on worship. You have a life centered on consistent worship. A life honoring God's commands. One more quality of a resting believer. A life trusting in God's provision. A life trusting in God's provision. You know, nobody an hour from death says, oh, I'm worried about how I'm going to pay these hospital bills. They're, they're done worrying, right? Wouldn't it be great to be done worrying a lot sooner than that? Chapter 25, the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, 
When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are on in your land. All its yield shall be for food. So what's the emphasis here? Don't plant anything the seventh year. Just let it be. This was partly for the sake of the poor. Exodus 23.10 says, For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. And so every seven years, the poor knew that you can wander in anybody's field and get anything that's growing. It was also so that everyone got a clean slate financially. Deuteronomy 15 commanded that in this year, all your debts are erased. If at some point you were in trouble after a bad harvest and you had to borrow money from your neighbor, maybe one of your oxen got out and trampled all your wheat right before harvest happened and you had to borrow a little money, of course, in good faith, you're to try to pay it back. But at Sabbath year, debts were released. What a beautiful picture of the grace of God. And why would God do this? Deuteronomy 15.4 says, There will be no poor among you. There will be no poor among you. And in addition to these benefits, it reminded the people that the land belonged to God. And God said, I want my land to rest as well, just like the people did, reminding them of who owned what. But probably the biggest spiritual emphasis was a massive reminder to trust the Lord for their material needs. Can I put it in terms that we understand? This is like God commanding us every six years, quit your job for a year. And during that year, everyone, we just read this, everyone from landowner owners to servants to the animals will eat the food that grows naturally during the Sabbath year. What does this remind us of? By the way, it reminds us of the Garden of Eden. That every seven years you were to sit back and let the Lord simply provide for you. Sabbath year was not a famine year. It was a return to paradise year. A year of total trust in the Lord. But it gets even better. Verse 8. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you in it. You shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field, meaning the the countryside. If it's not your fields, you can eat whatever's growing naturally. The year of Jubilee, every 50 years, it literally in Hebrew, it means the year of the ram's horn, the trumpet, the sounding of which now started the year of Jubilee. And by the way, it's not a coincidence that the trumpet sounding to announce the beginning of the year of Jubilee happens on the Day of Atonement. 
All sin has been taken care of. The nation is pure at this moment and the trumpet sounds. And now you take a year of jubilee. And like the Sabbath year, the land is fallow. Sold property is to be returned to the original owner. By the way, the jubilee year comes right after a Sabbath year. So what does this mean? Every 50 years, you go two years straight without sowing any seed. God's people are to rest in Him. They're to trust Him even more. This was to be a year of redemption as well. Beginning in verse 23 of chapter 25, family property that was lost for any reason was to be returned. Verse 23, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. Beginning in verse 35, This ensured that fellow Israelites treated each other with dignity, especially those who had fallen on hard times, that that a man whose farm or business had failed might offer himself to work for another. Verse 39, If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. In, In other words, don't humiliate him. Don't put him down. Now, did you see that little thing there? That you, he shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. So if your farm fails, you want to hope it's not the year after a Jubilee because it means you're, you're up a creek for 49 more years. But at least you know there's a moment. Wouldn't that be great to know that there's a moment when anything you've ever lost gets returned to you? And this is what happens. It's It's redemption. The year of Jubilee, everything was a do-over. You got back your freedom, you got back your land, you got back your dignity. And then beginning in verse 47, Israelites were to protect one another from being enslaved to a foreigner. 25 verse 47, If a sojourner or stranger with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you to a member of the stranger's clan, or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may, be, may redeem him. And then the rest of the section gives the laws on how that happens. Verse 50 says, the price to be paid is based on the number of years left until the year of Jubilee. And so it's a fair price. Verse 55, why are they doing this? For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They're my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. They were not to serve a foreigner. Do we have a, the same concept in our lives? Of course. The Lord will not have us serve sin. He will not have us serve something that is foreign to Him. We are His servants. We belong to Him. And therefore we do what He says. But the, the, the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee and the redemption of property, it was such a beautiful picture of God's provision If you could know for certain that God says, quit your job every six years, that you are going to be provided for, and abundantly so, um, what a great time, by the way, because when you're not having to be out in the fields, what are you doing? You're, You're with your family. You're with your community of faith. And if you did that once, twice, three times, four times over the course of 28 years, how would your trust in the Lord be? You would be rock solid in your faith. And that was his intention, for them to be restful. So we see this beautiful picture of the qualities of a restful believer, a a life centered on worship, a life centered on consistent worship. 
a life honoring God's commands and a life trusting in God's provision. There's a church in town here that is in the middle of doing a 21-day fast as a church so that they can determine what God's will is for the church. Can I save you a lot of trouble and keep you from being hungry? It's right here. What is God's will for a restful believer? It's right here. It is to do these things, a life of worship, a life of consistent worship, a life of honoring God's commands and a life of trusting God's provision. That's rest, that's peace. But what did Israel actually do? Looking at their history, how they responded to these beautiful laws is very sad. Sadly, the year of Jubilee remained an ideal which was seldom, if ever, actually practiced. And after the return from exile, uh, rabbinic literature tells us that the year of Jubilee was essentially deemed to be obsolete. They were not even going to worry about it anymore. As a matter of fact, it seems that very quickly... Israel not only abandoned the year of Jubilee every 50 years, but abandoned the Sabbath year every seven years. By the time David became king, Israel apparently simply quit trusting the Lord in this way. They quit this very tangible means in trusting in God's provision. In fact, in the very next chapter, God gives stern warnings about what he'll do if Israel turns away from him. Look with me at chapter 26, verse 33. And I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. Verse 34, then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate. While you are in your enemy's land, then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest. The rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. Apparently, From about the time of the very end of the period of the judges, the time of the greatest spiritual chaos, the time of the greatest moral failure in Israel, all the way to the time of the exile of Judah, that was precisely 490 years in which Israel should have kept 70 Sabbath years. Listen to the chronicler's account of the fall of Jerusalem in 586. 2 Chronicles 36, verse 19. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. And for 70 years, no Passover, no Feast of Unleavened Bread, no Feast of first fruits, no Feast of Weeks, no Feast of Trumpets, no Day of Atonement, no Feast of Booths. Can you imagine you as a Christian never coming to church never seeing a baptism, never receiving the Lord's table for decades and decades. It was spiritual disaster. But God in his mercy, he brought a remnant home and he began to reestablish his fellowship with Israel and he sent two prophets at about the same time. He sent the prophet Haggai, whose name means my feasts, And he sent the prophet Zechariah, the Lord has remembered. 
The Lord has remembered my feasts. God always remembers his grace. God always forgives the repentant. Now, I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention this. And you've probably already picked up on this. The feasts of Israel tell a beautiful story. They are a foreshadowing. They are a a pickup on the redemptive story of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you follow through the feasts, you can literally look at the ministry of Jesus Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb slain for the sins of the world at the cross of Calvary. How about the feast of first fruits? Leviticus 23.11 says that this offering of the first thing to come out of the ground was to be made on the day after the Sabbath. What was that day? That's Sunday. 1 Corinthians 15.20, Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, meaning the first person to ever die and be raised from the dead never to die again. Sunday became known in the New Testament as what? As the Lord's Day, the Feast of the First Fruits. How about the Feast of Weeks, otherwise known as Pentecost, where there's a much greater harvest? When Jesus was raised from the dead, it's just him. But at Pentecost, now instead of one man who had died and resurrected never to die again, there were instantly 3,000 who would receive eternal life and many more thousands to follow in the days after the harvest at the beginning of the church, the feast of trumpets, when the ram's horn sounded, it indicated that, that the harvest had finished, that the gathering of God's people was now complete. First Thessalonians four sixteen and 17, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with what? The sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's the harvest then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them, the holy convocation. And then you get to the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement obviously looks back to the cross of Christ. But even more importantly, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, to present the blood of the sacrifice to God. That was the official moment that forgiveness was granted. Well, Hebrews chapter 9, beginning of verse 11, records for us, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent or tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. When did Christ officially present himself as the high priest to bring his blood of the sacrifice into the most holy place in heaven. It was at his ascension. That's when he entered the most holy place. How about the Feast of Booths? When Israel remembered their great rescue from Egypt. This was also a festival, though, looking forward to the coming of Messiah. Why? Because Israel needs to be rescued again. They need to be rescued once again. In fact, at the Feast of Booths in John 7, beginning in verse 37, we see this happening on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me on the Feast of Booths, celebrating the coming of the Messiah and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus publicly announced himself as the Messiah at the Feast of Booths, which looks forward to the second coming of Christ. One of my favorite chapters in all the Old Testament, and I hope you'll indulge me because I'm going to read it to you, 
tells us of the second coming of Christ. Zechariah 14, Behold, the day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. That is the return of Christ. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither night nor day, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Jerusalem, gate of Bethlehem, rather, or Benjamin, to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited. And there shall never again be a decree of other destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them so that each one will seize the hand of another and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps, the camp of the enemy. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem, here we go, the beginning of the millennial kingdom, everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. We get to participate in the real feast of booths, not a hopeful looking ahead toward Messiah coming, but when we see the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when I said I kind of wish that we could celebrate these, here's one that we will. The feast of booths will be reinstated with Christ actually there. Passover, the cross of Christ, feast of first fruits, the resurrection of Christ, feast of weeks, the great harvest of new believers, the feast of trumpets, the gathering of God's people at the rapture and resurrection, the day of atonement, the ascension of Christ when he officially presents himself to God in heaven, and the feast of booths, the second coming of Christ as the rescuer of his beloved Israel and of all the faithful. And listen, if you believe this, if you cherish this, if you rehearse this, what do you get? You get rest. And you get peace, right? That's why the truth is what sets us free. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Leviticus 23, 24, and 25. 
to see really an ideal society in which sin is dealt with properly, in which the righteous are rewarded, and in which all of life and all of society is now centered on our worship of God. Help us, Lord, in the church of Jesus Christ, this community of faith in this age, to long for that, to long to be a community of faith in which we deal with sin properly, in which we live lives centered on worship, and in which we glorify and honor you. Lord, we thank you so much for the the shadow, the foreshadowing of these feasts and festivals and how they point to the Lord Jesus Christ and how he clearly has fulfilled all of them in great splendor and great majesty. I pray for each person here, Lord, that they would be able to pursue a life of rest, a life of peace. It is a battle. We do live in a sinful world. We live in our sinful flesh. We have sinful minds, sinful hearts. But I pray, Lord, to win more battles than we lose. I pray that we would pursue a life of worship, a life of consistent worship, that we would pursue a life of obeying your commands, and that we would pursue a life, Lord, that is, that is pleasing to you and that is trusting in your provision. And by doing these things, Lord, we might wake up each morning with a sense of peace and go to bed each night with a sense of trust, all made possible by the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross of Calvary and by his resurrection, his ascension, and his current ministry of advocating for us before you. And so we would give him all the glory and all the honor this evening, we pray in Christ's name, amen.